0: Welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Well, we started uh, today with a game about famous families, but you may not realize this. Your family is famous too. (laughs) In other words, they're famous in your life. They have had a tremendous impact In your life. And when I say family, I don't just mean the ones that you know now or the ones that you would consider immediate family as in like the ones you live with or the ones you see on Thanksgiving. We talk about family and really for many, many uh, decades and centuries and certainly in in the biblical times, the word family automatically included like kind of to the third and fourth generation. So grandparents, -grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, siblings, uncles, aunts, this is all kind of part of our family, and that your family is famous in the sense that um, even the ones you don't know have had a tremendous impact on your life. Now, I don't know if you're into, you're seeing those commercials for like, or people who are into sort of ancestry.com and going and finding out your family tree and whatever. Some of us are into that kind of stuff. Some of us aren't. Um, But the point really isn't about, uh, oh, figuring out some interesting factoids that existed in your family. Oh, did you know your great-grandmother was, you know, royalty or something? I mean, maybe it might matter to some of you. You maybe want to find out. But really, for the most part, it's just kind of like interesting facts. But that's not actually why I say that your family is famous in the, in the impact that they've had in your lives. I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, and he uh, makes the point that if you want to understand someone's behavior, or really even your own, he says this, you have to know where they are from. And he references a number of research studies, some that he undertook, some that, uh, one uh, in particular in the early 90s in the University of Michigan, um, where they were trying to, or actually determining that the way... Two, dif- two different people faced with the same situation responded differently, and what could the, the most uh, accounting for their difference in response was actually where they were from. In other words, not even where they grew up, not even where their parents grew up, but the hundreds of years before their family origins, the history, the story of their family shaping how they would respond to situations today. Which is to say, your genes. Are telling a story that is hundreds of years old and not primarily about your skin color or your hair color, but your attitudes, your thoughts, your beliefs, and your behaviors. Your genes are telling a story, not primarily about hair color, eye color, skin color, whatever, but how you respond, how you live, how you think, what your beliefs and attitudes are, is shaped by your family. Now, when we say family, um, you know, what immediately can come to mind for some of us, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but three responses, some of us are like, yeah, family, mostly good. That's a positive word for me. You know, um, I, I, I have good memories of my family growing up. I still have good relationships with them now. I look forward to seeing them. Yeah, mo- not perfect, mostly good, right? Some of us would be like, oh, mostly bad. Like I just try not to think about it. Try not to connect with them too much. Um, it's, it's a mess, maybe. Some of us might say, yeah, like kind of mostly bad, like lots of chaos and things like that. I don't want to (laughs) think about it. And others would say, oh, family, it's complicated, mostly (laughs) complicated. But it actually matters how we think about, regardless of where we think our family uh, sits on that spectrum. Peter Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says this, regardless of our culture, our country of origin, our education, Social class or age, the early messages and scripts we took in from our histories powerfully influence our present relationships and behaviors as well as our self-esteem. The messages and scripts we took in from our stories powerfully influence our present relationships, behaviors, and our self-esteem. Which I think is just to say this, when we talk about what we're talking about in this series, about getting breakthrough, about getting freedom, about getting unstuck and unhindered, right? When we experience a feeling of being stuck uh, in a relationship, in a thought pattern, in a behavior, in a season of life, or generally in our mental state or emotional state or whatever that is, or feeling hindered, like I'm taking one step forward, I feel like I'm driven two steps back, like I can't move forward. To get freedom, to get breakthrough, is to say this, we're gonna have to look back at our family, our family story, our history, the scripts and messages that come from not just our parents, but our grandparents and our great-grandparents, and are a part of the family we were born into. Said another way, you're not going to be able to move forward into your life unless you're willing to actually examine your past, your story, your family. Now, there are some objections that I think immediately will come up in you. Can I just maybe speak to those as I understand them as well? Some of us will say, well, no, like my family's fine. Like, not much to look... Look, it wasn't perfect, but I just know, like, it's it's mostly good. Not much to do there. I don't really think that's had an impact on where I am today. I don't think that's contributing to why I feel stuck or hindered. But can I just remind you of this? That you are a beautiful, broken person, so the scriptures say, and you were born to beautiful and broken people. And so it is inevitable that the brokenness that was in our family has affected us today. We may not see the connections between them, but they are there. It's just a part of who we are. It's part of what it means to be born into this world. And I would say, in, in my case, that's my story. I would say, if I think about my family, yeah, mostly good, positive. I have really good relationships with them. Like I have uh, positive memories and associations. And yet, Um, Both they and I, my sister as well, have spent the last many years actually trying to understand, okay, well, how were those? We're all imperfect people. How did those stories and scripts and messages and whatever shape our lives today? It's actually a part of getting breakthrough um, for all of us. So this is not something um, that some of us don't need to do. Some of us, on the other hand, may go, oh, I already know it's a mess. My story is a mess of pain, of trauma, grief and loss, maybe abuse. Uh, maybe it was, things were just cold or distant. Um, or there's pain when you, when you even think about it. And you're like, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to go. I'm just trying to move on. I don't want to go back. I don't want to think about this. I'm trying to get as far away from that as I can. I'm trying to move on. I'm trying to do something different, which, of course, is beautiful. That's why you want breakthrough and freedom. And yet, let's say this. Just because you know you don't want to repeat what's happened in the past doesn't mean you're free to actually live that way. Time by itself does not heal all wounds. And in fact, if you know the story in your past is pretty bumpy or traumatic or full of grief and loss or pain, all the more reason to say, okay, I got to look at it to actually it may be the key for unlocking freedom in my life. Maybe the third objection that many of us would have, some of us who are from honor-shame cultures, Asian, South Asian cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, where it was wrong to ever speak badly to or about your elders, and certainly elders in your family, like that was just taboo. Or even if you didn't come from an honor-shame culture, maybe you came from a culture where you said, we never talk badly about family. And so that very instinctively can feel like we're doing something wrong to even think about and focus on maybe the areas in our family that weren't okay, that weren't good, the scripts. And and so that can even be coming up in us right now. And let me just say this. Actually, the most loving and honoring thing you could do for your family is to experience healing, is to go back and say, okay, how do we actually, how do I actually heal and move forward that will be a blessing to my family in the present? and whatever future family I might have, or I do have. That this is actually the most honoring and loving thing that I could do for my family name. So let's get into this um, as we try to explore this together. One of the things you might uh, be surprised to find out or know that um, family is one of the dominant themes or thread lines that runs all the way through scripture. In fact, many of the Old Testament stories, the kind of the first half of the library of scripture, uh, are stories about families. Some of them are kind of right up close in terms of individ- individual interactions between husbands and wives and children and siblings and aunts and uncles and grandparents. Um, some are sort of played out over the, the, the bigger sort of map or sphere of like uh, kingdoms and countries, but often still involving and shaped by family or family lineage. And so family is one of the dominant themes that we find through scripture. God identifies himself and Jesus speaks about God as the father or his father, that God, the, the true and perfect parent. And even Jesus, when, who is the centerpiece of the scripture, the first biography we find in the Bible about Jesus begins with a genealogy, a family history of Jesus Christ. And so family is one of the dominant themes all the way through scripture. And yeah, the verse we're gonna read today is one maybe you've never associated with the idea of family, and it's a short verse. It appears a couple of times in different parts of scripture. Um, But it is, I think, one of the keys in understanding family dynamics and how it works in our lives, and how God means to bring breakthrough in our lives through these things. So let's listen together as it's read for us.
1: Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation.
0: Okay, I don't know if I'm the only one or not, but I have every time I read this verse, I find it problematic. Like emotionally, I have a negative response to it. So can I? Maybe it's just me, but maybe it's just catharsis. Can I just share this with you? What uh, I find this statement like God punishes the children for the parents' sin to the third and fourth generation. Like, there's a lot of other beautiful things in here, but for some reason, that part of the verse, I get stuck on. I'm like, what? Like, that seems unjust of God. That seems, like, unfair. It seems mean. <laughs> um, and so I think we just need to k- kind of camp out here, actually, because it's a really important verse. The whole section is. And just address, what's going on here? What, what does this say? What does it seem to say? What is it not saying? And how is it a key to actually understanding what breakthrough looks like in our lives? Um, one thing just to say quickly that was so helpful for me, uh, in one of my seminary classes, our professor in reading this verse made this comment. He said the the magnitude of numbers matters here a lot. He said, it's not just the three and four generations. He said that number and numbers in the scriptures mean a lot. And even the the turn of phrase, it's actually, you can't just look at that verse. You have to actually look at the verse that comes before it because it's comparing two sets of numbers. It's it's comparing the number thousand versus the number three or four. And it says this, God shows faithful love to thousands but punishes the children for the sins of the parents for the third and fourth generation. He says the comparison of those numbers is really important. In other words, this is saying that God's heart and action is disproportionately weighted towards love, mercy, forgiveness, grace, and compassion right? That's the the magnitude. A thousand is exponentially higher than three or four. He's saying this is what it's saying. God's compassion and mercy and love and forgiveness is is the disproportionate nature of his character compared to this other thing, the the punishment or three and four generations. So that's the first thing, just to step back. That's saying in general, this is who God is, which if we can be honest, that's not who we are. (laughs) It is who God is. He is disproportionately, exponentially more weighted towards love, mercy, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. So we have to start there and begin every understanding of God and ourselves from that vantage point. But then as we go on, and you think about this for a moment, it's actually interesting, this idea of the children being punished to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the parents. And I can just say, our culture actually believes that present generations— in some way, are responsible for the behavior of past generations. Our culture actually believes. Even people who don't believe in God. Even if you're like, "Hey, I've never heard this verse before. I don't really know about God. I'm exploring my faith." We actually believe that. Just recently, in our own nation's history, you know, over the last um, several years, we are becoming aware of the sins of past families, of past cultures, of past religious denominations, of past churches, of past governments, even specifically related to the residential schools, the the horrific way that indigenous peoples were treated in our nation's history. And what are we saying? We're saying, hey, to the present generation, it's not good enough to say you weren't alive then, or if you were alive then you wouldn't have done that. These are sins of our past, and we have to repent of them today, right? We are asking rightly Families, churches, denominations, systems, towns, governments to take responsibility and accountability for things that past generations did, to make them right, to apologize, to, um, to mend and amend and to heal. So we actually know this in our thing, and that's kind of actually what this is this is saying. It's like, hey. Future generations are connected to and in some ways responsible for or accountable for the behavior of past generations. We know that. It's actually embedded in our idea of justice. Things just can't go on in the past that are not acknowledged or dealt with or paid for in the present time. But maybe more importantly, um, if we understand the verse and this idea of um, Punishment. Some of your translations will say "visits upon," and this is actually a way to think about this. Is the the when when the scripture describes God punishing the sins. Another way to describe it, or if you look at the Greek or in the original Hebrew, it's this idea of visiting sin or iniquity upon the next generation. Which, if I can say it this way, um, who pays the price for the parent's sin? Right. In in actual fact, who pays the price? for the sins of a parent, the child, right? Said another way, who bears the consequences of a parent's sin? I mean, I suppose in some ways the parents do, but always the children do, right? Who pays the price for a parent that constantly flies off the handle into a rage with a tirade of words or or even uses physical violence? Who pays the price for that? The child, right? That's not, in a sense, God saying, well, they did this, so I'm going to punish you with this. It's actually a law of the universe. Anyone who has studied psychology, sociology, anthropology knows the behavior of the parents affect the child for better or for worse. And people argue whether it's nature, whether these things are built into us, like just biologically these things, you know, carry on, or nurture, it's just the environment we're in. But either way, we live in a world that understands this is just a law of the universe. It's another way actually to read this passage <laughs> saying this happens, and yet, look, this is actually describing the mercy of God. Because one of the things you'll find actually in Scripture from the beginning, and you'll see this in your own life, is the families pass on mess to the next generation. It happens. It's a, it seems to be a law of human behavior or, or nature. And yet God is constantly intervening to heal and restore and forgive. Mess gets passed on for families, but God is actually constantly intervening into the human situation, into human suffering, into human pain. And it's a way of him saying third and fourth generation, not a thousand. This will not go on forever. Right? This is actually God saying, I have mercy and compassion. Yes, these messes, these sins, these things are passed on. This pain is passed on, but I am intervening. And actually, that's what you find if you read scripture. God is constantly intervening. Yes, families are passing on their mess, but God is constantly intervening to stop it, to heal it, to redeem it, to forgive it. This is who our God is. And so, Let's get practical about this. We say, okay, well, like, what does this actually look like? Like, how does this actually work? How do these things work themselves out in my own family? If I were to think about this and say, okay, well... If, if understanding my family story is actually key to getting breakthrough, how do I understand the way the mess is passed on from generation to generation, or in a sense, the future generations suffer because of what the previous generations have done? Probably three categories, if I can kind of describe this, that we see in Scripture and we just see played out in our lives. Repeated sins, false ideas, and unhealthy attachments. Repeated sins, false ideas, unhealthy attachments. I want to camp out in each of these three and just say, yeah, how does, and to help you kind of see, how is this at work even in my own life? Um, Repeated sins. I mean, if we could say it this way, your parents have taught you a lot of things, but most of the things we caught, they weren't taught to us, we caught them. In other words, they were in the environment we grew up in. I hate to say this to you parents, you know, and I hate this feeling myself as a parent. I'm going to teach my kids a lot of things, and one of the things I'm going to teach them to do is sin because they're going to catch, I don't try to, I'm trying not to, but they're going to catch the fact that I am a sinner, that I'm broken, that I have stuff in me and the way I act and think and speak that is not good. And they're going to catch that from me and it will repeat itself in their lives. Now, some of us, we can see some of these things we could see maybe in an obvious way, whether it's um, addictions to substances or food or, um, you know, pornography or gambling, um, those kinds of things. Like some of those, like, look at. These are things, you may not realize that one of the reasons you're struggling with a substance abuse or or pornography addiction or whatever is actually because your parents did, or your your grandfather, your great-grandfather. Now, they're not going to find that on Ancestry.com if you go look that up. I mean, people would really buy that a lot if they could find that, but that's not the stuff that comes out. Actually, those are the things that are hidden as family secrets. They're not told. And they're kept hidden because they think, oh, we don't want anyone to know or this will bring shame or hopefully no one else will know. But people know because it repeats itself in the next generation. We actually even know alcoholism, right? Can run in the family biologically. And so so can many, Like like science is catching up to what scripture said to the third and fourth generation. We know this, we see this. These things repeat themselves. And some of them are obvious, whether it's addictions or substance abuse and all that kind of stuff. Some of them are not as obvious to see. Compulsive worrying, lying, gossip, slander, outbursts of rage, or fear, or greed. These are things that are not as visible on the surface. They don't look like addiction or whatever, but they also can be in our family history, things we catch, right? If you, as a child, constantly hear your parents worrying about money, worrying about what other people think of them or their house or how they look or their weight, worrying about what's going on in the world in a kind of a stressful way. No one needs to tell you to worry. You just hear, oh, that's how you respond to problems. Oh, you better worry about money. Oh, you better think twice about what other people think of you before that you invite them over. You're just going to catch that. No one has to tell you it. It's caught. These can be things that repeat themselves in our lives. Not just repeated sins, but false ideas. Remember we talked about like mental maps and how our minds are, have a map for how we see the world and how we make decisions about sex and about money and about relationships and about jobs and about everything. I um, mean, about how we see God and how we see ourselves and, and thought patterns and all of that stuff. They're made up, our mind is made up of ideas that form a map that guide us to what we think is real, reality, truth. And Some of those ideas on our mental maps are good and true and they correspond to reality. They are real But others ideas, even though we think they're real, they're actually false. They're actually illusions And we don't always know the difference and here's the thing That's true about your family. It's true about your parents and about their parents and about their parents parents and about their parents 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 Nobody sat there whispering lies into the ears of the children. I mean most parents don't do that They might whisper or say or live out things that they also believe are true, but in the end are not. That there can be false ideas that our family all believed were true and shaped what we thought and lived by them. And they can actually, these aren't sins, these are lies about reality, about God, about ourselves, about each other, about everything. And they can come to us through our family. Remember we said that we have the enemy of our soul, the devil, and the way that he works to destroy us and to keep us stuck and hindered is not through kind of weird stuff that we would see in the exorcist or whatever, but through lies. Well, those lies can be planted generations ago and be carried on, and it doesn't sound like the devil at all. It sounds like our parents or our parents' parents telling us something that our heart has believed is true because we were listening to it from the time we were born. Peter Scazzaro says this, we often underestimate the deep, unconscious imprint our families of origin leave on us. In fact, my observation is that it is only as we grow older that we realize the depth of their influence. Each of our family members, or those who raised us through childhood, has imprinted certain ways of behaving and thinking into us. These behavioral patterns operate under a set of commandments. Some of them are spoken and explicit, most are unspoken. They were hardwired into our brains and DNA, and we simply bring these expectations into our closest relationships as adults. Think about it this way. How did you learn your native tongue, whether it was English or another language? Your parents didn't sit down with a book initially and start to teach you to speak. You learned by immersion. You were, as a child, surrounded by words flying over your head and all around you. In the beginning, they were just sounds and you couldn't distinguish the sound of a voice from the sound of a truck. And then you started to distinguish voices. Then you started to distinguish parents' voices and which ones were the most important to listen to. Then you started to be able to understand a word. Then you started to be able to understand a few words strung together in instructions or expressions of affection or love or laughter. Then you started to form sounds. Then you started to form a word. Then you started to, a whole string of words came out of your mouth progressively, but it began with immersion before you understood what was going on. That's how we learn a language. It's also how we adopt what, because Sarah says, these commandments or these false ideas of our family, we are immersed in them and we hear them swimming around us before we can even understand words or ideas for ourselves. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he gives a few examples of some of these commandments. And I want you to just listen and just kind of try these on. He says one of the commandments of our family, whether somebody said it or not, could be money is the best source of security. Money is the best source of security. I'll tell you, like in in premarital counseling to do with couples to prepare them to be married, this session on family background is always the most important one. It's always the one where the light goes on for so many people. No matter what their family background or is, good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. Realize it. And some will say, oh my gosh, I realize, I actually believe money is the best source of security. And is that because my parents told me that? No. But maybe for many of us, the children of maybe immigrant parents were, or our, our grandparents are immigrants, the stories we know is they got here to this country and they worked their tail off seven days a week. Remarkable, incredible the things that immigrant families did to start their uh, a destiny for their kids in a new life. But indirectly, what can be seen is, oh, work and making money in security is the most important thing. That is what we need the most of in this. No one planned to tell it, but it can be a false idea either that the parents have or just understood by the child as they watch the parent live. It's not true, but it's easily believed. What about this one? Men can be promiscuous, but women must be chaste. I mean, this one we see all the way even through scripture how poorly treated uh, in the early patriarchal families and patriarchal cultures the women were, and that somehow it was okay for men to have multiple wives or concubines and all of this stuff, but women, there was shame on their lives if they ever acted that way, or shame on prostitution and all of that. Like We, we actually realized there's such a double standard for men and women uh, throughout history, and perhaps that was the case in your family, whereas if a man was promiscuous, he was considered some kind of a you know a champion, uh, but if a woman was, she was given a derogatory label. There's a double standard in this idea of sexuality. That, those can be commandments. They're lies in terms of the different standard. But it can be believed and seen and played out. What about this one? Sarcasm is an acceptable way to release anger. Right? Maybe in your home, nobody yelled. But there was always kind of biting, cutting comments with a little bit of a smirk, a little bit of a laugh. And everyone was supposed to take it and handle, handle it. And maybe it all worked well until you got married. And now your husband says, hey, why are you always like that? Or your wife's like, oh, you're so biting, or you're cutting, or you're funny, but it, has, it comes with a barb. It comes with a, you know, a, a needle prick. Like, what is that about? That can be a family value. It's like, this is how we express anger. You don't blow up, but you can jab someone back. What about this? Don't speak about your family's dirty laundry in public. Man, any one of us who felt this was true going on, this whole message is, is disruptive for us. But these kinds of ideas can actually keep you, you know, this lie, this lie I've said many times to couples, put your hand up and ask for help before you think you need help in your marriage. Because oftentimes by the time we put it up and say, it's actually not, I need help, but I'm done or I'm out. It's not a cry for help. It's a surrender flag saying it's over. Why? Because what we were told is, you don't tell anybody or in our family, you keep family business, you deal with family business in the family. You make sure everybody outside looks and sees a good picture. Inside, we'll deal with the mess and we'll keep it inside. And so maybe part of you is actually even wanting to put your hand up to get help. And what is forcing you down, what is hindering you from putting your hand up is a lie that says you don't air your family's dirty laundry in public. And it's actually keeping you in a prison in what could be an amazing marriage or amazing situation with your family or whatever. But you cannot ask for help because you have a false idea of what that means that came from your family, from your parents or your parents' parents or your parents' parents' parents or whatever it is. Friends, these are the ways. These aren't sins. These are false ideas about reality, but they can make a mess in our lives. They can cause us to be stuck or hindered. And then lastly, unhealthy attachments. Unhealthy attachment, this is where we have an unhealthy attachment to the emotions, the wishes, the responses, and the approval of someone in our family, where this is beyond just caring about them or caring about what they think or loving them. This is where like, we feel tied like a string to them, like their responses, their ideas, their wishes, their emotions, their approval yanks us around. And I'm not just talking about when we're four, we're 14 or 24 or 54, I've seen couples who will we'll be fighting about how the intimacy in their own marriage is affected because one or both of them are a slave to their parents' wishes. And so we always have to be at your mom's place for dinner on Sunday. Is is dinner with mom on Sunday a bad thing? No, but if it's a demand, if it's a commandment, it's like you never, this family first, extended family first. And maybe that's actually interrupting what needs to happen in your own family. Or on Christmas, we're all supposed to be together instead of actually starting new traditions. These are small things. And and maybe they just need to be worked out, but maybe there's an unhealthy attachment where the one party or both party cannot say no to the parents, or lives with such guilt if they do, or living out a career or a way of being or a way of being as a woman as a man because those are the expectations of the parental or uh, the paternal or maternal figure in your family or in your grandparents' family or whatever that was. I've seen this even in, in, uh, with kids and parents, where a parent can ride the emotional roller coaster tied to a string of their child's emotions, behavior, or well being, whether that child is four or 24. And that that it's not just about care and love, but how that child is doing robs the parent of true joy, robs the parent of being able to make decisions for themselves of things that they need to do because they have an unhealthy attachment to their child. We see this in scripture all the way through. Scripture actually tells us that um, in a good way, a husband and wife are tied together in their souls Um, in marriage, in sex, that sex actually binds you to another person, which is a great thing in marriage. But if there's been divorce or if there's been separation or whatever, that bond is still there and there can be an unhealthy attachment. Or if there's been sexual abuse in your family history, there can be an unhealthy attachment in that way. We see even in scripture where there was an unhealthy attachment between Jacob, he had 12 sons, but he favored one of them heavily because he had an unhealthy attachment to that child's mother, because his sons had two different mothers, which was a mess to begin with. Again, back to some of the other problems. And so he favored that one son so much so that it embittered the other sons that they attempted to kill him and they abducted him. And then the grief that came out of their father really only for this one child, it wrecked the family. It was an unhealthy attachment of the parent to that one child. And that can happen in our own lives as well. Not just repeated sins, not just false ideas, but unhealthy attachments. There can be healthy attachments and there can be unhealthy ones. (laughs) that's all the bad news, but there is good news, right? When we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, it is good news for us as well, who have been part of family histories and stories where there are repeated sins, where there are false ideas, where there are unhealthy attachments. Jesus Christ is good news for that as well. And many of us don't even realize it. Cazero says in his book, yeah, you may have Jesus in your heart, but you have grandpa in your bones, <laughs> right? And you think like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower. How come I still feel stuck in these things? It's because you haven't looked at the impact of family. And the good news of Jesus Christ actually addresses that as well. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of adoption into a new family. And it's based actually on the idea that in Roman culture, Adoption was a big deal in Roman families, the Roman families had slaves in their home that were either people who were living a life of indentured servanthood where um, they, they couldn't pay their taxes to Rome, so they had to sell themselves as slaves to try to work off a lifelong debt in a family, or because of the many uh, nations and lands that Rome conquered, then they would take those uh, children, sons and da- the, the girls and boys, to be slaves in their homes. So it was a really rough situation, obviously, for a slave, but the Romans had this very high view of adoption, and that if a Roman family decided to adopt a slave boy or slave girl to make them a son or a daughter, this is what it would mean. It would mean their debts were paid off, so whatever debt they were working to pay off was gone. It meant they had a new name, <laughs> that they were given a new family name as part of that adoption that they were given an inheritance that now all of the family's wealth, um, all of the family's social importance, all of the family's property and livestock and family business, they got to inherit too. And it was irreversible. A Roman family could actually disown a son or daughter, but they could never disown a child that they had adopted and made a son or daughter. So adoption was even more secure of a place and identity in a family than to be born into the family. You were there for life, and you got everything with it. (laughs) And a couple weeks ago, we read this verse together. In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God planned and desired to adopt us into his family, (laughs) which was a loaded term. What it meant for us is this, that your sins or your debts, my sins, my debts are paid. That's what our adoption means. The slate of our sins and all the stuff, the things we've repeated or the false ideas are forgiven and wiped clean. We have no more debt to pay. We are given a new name as children of God in the family of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, we have a new identity. We are now inheritors of something good and beautiful, right? Like all of us in our family tree, in a sense, you've inherited some of those repeated sins. You inherited some of those false ideas. You inherited some of those um, uh, unhealthy attachments. And now in Jesus, we inherit all of the good things that come from our good, beautiful, loving, heavenly father. We inherit all of the stuff that Jesus as the eldest brother in the family gets. What we get is a whole new way to live, a whole new life. And actually a family of brothers and sisters to work out and live a new way. Like we actually get to learn a new way of relating to our brothers and sisters in the family. And actually we start to realize some of our repeated sins, some of our unhealthy attachments, some of our false ideas when we begin to interact with brothers and sisters who are not from our bloodline, (laughs) but who are in the family of God. They have a different set of repeated sins and unhealthy attachments and all that. And we start to realize, wait, we need to change. The family of inheritance that we get, actually, this isn't just about heaven someday, one day. It's a new way to live that we get in the family of God. What flows now in the bloodline in our family tree is Jesus and who he is in the family of God. And it is irreversible. One of the verses you would have read in the daily reading uh, last week was about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is irreversible. This is our new identity as people that are adopted. Friends, this is the blessing and the gift that we get. This new identity as adopted sons and daughters in the family of God is where we work out a whole new way to be, where the power of um, the past can be broken, where repeated sins can be forgiven and we can be set free from where false ideas can be rooted out and replaced with good and beautiful truth and where the unhealthy attachments can be cut so that we have a healthy relationship with the people in our lives, in our biological family and in the family of God. I want you to listen as a story is read for you. It's gonna be read anonymously, but it's a story of someone in our church family who has been working out this freedom um, from their past in their lives. And so I want you to listen.
1: In May 2021, I went for a Renewal Prayer Session. This is a ministry at our church aimed at helping people experience breakthrough and freedom. The reason why I made this appointment was that I had come to a place where I realized there were recurring lies in my life, and I wanted to understand why they were so persistent. The lies had to do with my value and worth, that I was an outsider in my family, never included. Always on the outside, looking in. That I wasn't special enough or had anything to offer. That I'd always be overlooked. That I didn't belong and never would belong. These lies affected every aspect of my life. During my session, an image came to mind from my childhood home. A family tree painting that had been on one of the walls in our hallway and had all these old black and white photos of family members. As we continued our session, it became clear that there was family and generational sin trickling into my life. Things that came to the surface were infidelity, favoritism, physical abuse, depression, suicide, and trauma from war. I had not experienced any of these painful traumatic events firsthand but the impact in rubble was still in my life through the lies of the enemy. As we prayed, we cut unhealthy attachments and repeated patterns of sin from previous generations. I took a stand against any power and access the evil one may have had over me through the lives of previous generations in my family line. As I prayed, I saw the pictures of all my relatives that had been up, ones I had never met, great grandparents, great uncles, great cousins photos hanging beside that family tree painting in my home. These pictures came down as I prayed to confess and renounce their sins. After I finished, I could hear Jesus say, Everything is done. After my renewal prayer session, I felt at peace. Those persistent lies are quieter. I have a better relationship with my siblings, and I have a deeper understanding and love for my mom. This newfound freedom has also impacted my ministry to others. I feel more confident in who God has made me and feel empowered to step into what He has for me. Most of all, I have a deep gratitude. Jesus decided to start something new in my family and He has allowed me to be an integral part of that healing, not only for myself, but for my family as a whole, and I'm the youngest. I can see Him at work in and through my family. Since the session, he has given me these verses found in Isaiah 58, verses 11 and 12. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings.
0: Friends, our desire... Uh, My desire for you, for myself as well, is that we would have our own story of breakthrough, of freedom, in a progressive way. Not in a one-time way, but as we look back, as we understand our past, we will be able to move forward in freedom into our future. And so I'll say this, and I'll borrow a chapter, actually, from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The title of the chapter is, you got to go back to go forward. To get breakthrough, to move forward, (laughs) ironically, We need to look back and deal with the past. Not in fear, not in shame, not feeling like it's some act of dishonor towards our family, but because we love our family of origin and we want to, they wouldn't have wanted to pass on things that they didn't want to pass on into our lives. And so out of honor and reverence for them, we look back. Out of honor and reverence for our own family today and the people not only in our biological family, but in the family of God. And we have been given a safe space in the family of God to do this. this. is why we preach about these things, because we do it together. We're all in the same boat. We all need to go on that journey to go back, to go forward. And so this week in the daily reading, that's what you're going to have a chance to do. And again, one week is not going to do it. But if my own life is any experience, it will introduce to you ideas and handles and ways to think about this that will help you peel the layers year after year as you continue to experience more freedom in the family of God. We're going to have a chance in a few moments to celebrate communion together. Communion is a family meal. Actually, in the first century, the churches, that's what it was. It wasn't just sort of a little piece of bread or whatever. It was actually a meal that they shared together as a new family, a new family meal. One of the rhythms we've introduced in home groups in recent years is your party nights. Your party nights are family meals. They are chances for you to sit down with people that you don't share bloodline with but you share the family of God with, you share Christ with, you share the blood of Christ that has defined your life together. You share the fact that each of you have stories of getting freedom from repeated sins and false ideas and unhealthy attachments. We're all in the same boat. Your family meals together in home groups are meant to teach you and help you find a new way of relating to each other. And this family meal we celebrate as communion is the very same thing. And so you can just prepare your heart to receive that today as a gift of Jesus breaking uh, his body and his blood, in a sense, to form a new bloodline, to form a new family, to bring us together in a whole new.